Hello, everyone. You're listening to Future Chain, your source for thought leadership on machine learning and artificial intelligence in supply chain management. I'm your host, Greg Fawcett. I have worked with AI, ML, NLP, and predictive analytics applications in industries from advertising to telecom. We're going to talk about all these technologies and how they bring value to supply chain management. We're also going to talk about the overall evolution of supply chain management. Our guest today is Dr. David L. Anderson. Dave is Managing General Partner for Supply Chain Ventures. He has worked 35 years in IT and operations consulting. Dr. Anderson retired from Accenture in 2001. Dave teaches supply chain investing at MIT. Those MIT students are very lucky because he runs one of the top uh, venture firms in the space. Welcome, David. Thank you, Greg. Now, I normally like to open with a personal detail, but um, I know the the personal is the the professional for you and that uh, you're... Your hobby is your business, and you you clearly put a lot into it and have had great success. Um, so tell us about your notable early stage investments and exits. Uh, well, thanks again, Greg. Um, you know, I we founded Supply Chain Ventures, just a little background here, in, in 2002, right after I uh, retired from Accenture. Uh, and my wife asked me what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. So <laughs> it was a uh, it, it it was something I'd been thinking about, and uh, uh, it 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 uh, it came it came to fruition. Let's, let's put it that way in a, in, a, in a big way over the last 20 years. Uh, uh, Supply chain ventures, two partners, myself and Dan Dersham, who was the founder of. Lean Logistics, which was my first investment with the fund yes. uh, back in 2001. And uh, we focus on um, early and late stage supply chain investing in both software and hardware. Uh, uh, as, you, uh, as you said, uh, Greg, we've had some notable early stage investments and exits. Lean Logistics, uh, a company we've actually sold twice now. Mm. <laughs> Kiva Systems at the last time to uh, Francisco Partners. It's now part of Blue Yonder. Um, Kiva Systems, which we sold to Amazon. Um, Steel Wedge, uh, folk, Kiva Systems focused on robotics. Steel Wedge focused on, on supply chain planning. We sold that to E2 Open. Uh, Optient, was one that focused on multi-echelon inventory planning, sold that to Legility. MacroPoint, a supply chain visibility company, sold to Descartes. Lamasoft just sold two weeks ago to the public company Coupa. Uh, wow. And uh, Shipmonk uh, just sold this week to uh, Summit Partners. Um, we're also senior advisors to um, private equity companies like TPG Capital, HG Capital, JMI Equity, Marlin Equity on later stage deals. And that kind of explains this, our sales of Lamasoft and uh, 
and uh, and and Chipmunk here. Um, it's quite a record of success. Oh, thank you, thank you. And uh, we're uh, uh, we're not we're not going anywhere anytime soon. We're uh, uh, have plenty of capital to continue that investing and and plan on doing that um, for at least the next uh, 10 years. Well, you clearly know all aspects of the industry um, and uh, have a, a good sense of uh, you know, where the traction is in the marketplace. Why don't we start with um, uh, what the, the pre-COVID-19 state of the supply chain investing space was? Uh, well, it it was a, a white hot era for <laughs> starting a, a supply chain oriented company, and literally thousands of new supply chain startups globally have uh, have started or attempted to start over the last five to seven years. Uh, some of the major investing spaces have been virtual brokerage or digital brokerage of freight. Uh, e-commerce logistics, blockchain, and robotics. Um, there's been a few crazy valuations out there. Um, Flexport, which is a virtual brokerage, has become a unicorn with a billion-dollar investment from, from SoftBank. And it's becoming increasingly common that we have billion-dollar-plus valuations in, in the supply chain space, uh, which frankly, really uh, didn't happen until the last few years. The, uh, the big leap forward that we saw um, coming, and it's really been one of our big investing themes, has been incorporating uh, AI and machine learning into supply chain decision making. Um, it, it's become one of the most value-creating space because adding re- real-time data and AI ML capabilities to existing software solutions um, results in much better optimization, much better efficiency, uh, much better solutions that the tools can come up with, and it's uh, it's been a, a real focus of our space of our investing over the last five years or so. Yeah, it's much needed. Uh, a, a pet peeve of mine is uh, how much legacy tools are still used in the space, specifically Excel. Um, so I think uh, the industry is hungry for uh, AI and ML. Uh, you're right. Uh, and I, I must see one Excel replacement uh, planning tool a week, right? Everybody everybody wants to replace uh, Excel. And as I usually start out by telling them, Good luck with that, but uh-huh. uh, yeah. <laughs> it is it is ubiquitous. You're right in in the supply chain world for both execution and planning. Very true. Uh, what changes has COVID nineteen brought to our supply chain? In many ways, it's not likely to cause drastic changes from where things were already going, and. What I think it, but what it will do, I believe, is accelerate trends that were already happening. Um, changes that might have taken ten or fifteen years before, simply because of the stickiness of technology and decision making, 
uh, in you know very linear supply chains may are now happening in far far less time and you know it's clear that businesses are going to redesign uh, their supply chains <coughs> excuse me after the current crisis to satisfy uh, new suppliers and customer requirements uh, but something interesting i think if if you look at this over time you'll see that we'll we'll fall back into what what i call the perfectly normal state between crises in other words we'll redesign it put the new the new state you know in effect start operating on it and then you know unless there's another crisis uh, we assume that that's the steady state going forward mm -hmm. uh, there, there definitely will be a drive for efficiencies and cost savings, and and this dictates that you know regardless of what happens now with respect to how we deal with the short run crisis, the longer term supply chains are going to go back to uh, you know their fundamental cost and service uh, requirements, albeit they'll be different than than what they are today, uh, and frankly that new cycle will continue. In the future, as humans have shown themselves to be terrible predictors of the future state of uh, of business, and uh, we will uh, we will live with that until perhaps another crisis comes along, and then we'll change it again. But uh, it, it is uh, it's definitely uh, there definitely are major changes underway. Well, I know you've identified the cycle as crisis. A normal and crisis, uh, and it's just hard to believe that uh, you know people haven't been spooked by this pandemic, um, you know, into a, a correction uh, of that cycle. Um, but I I want to talk about the the changes you've referenced. Um, what are some of the supply chain disruptions uh, and adaptations you have seen as a result of uh, the COVID nineteen virus? Well, there, there is a there is a major overriding uh, lesson here for anybody who works in supply chain, and and that's that supply chains will need to be more flexible, resilient to unexpected changes, and ability to shift sourcing or distribution in days or weeks, not months of years, as as historically uh, uh, people thought about supply chains. Okay, we don't have to change them very often. They work well. Um, let's just keep up with it. But I, I think what what the problem that COVID has exposed here is that most of your current supply chain technologies reside on what I call old data. Could be three month old um, ERP data out of uh, out of an SAP system on demand and product availability to plan and execute decision making. Uh, this is just not going to be acceptable anymore. Um, furthermore, um, there are emerging real-time data sources that are becoming available, traffic, weather, Facebook, Twitter feeds, uh, declared data from loyalty programs, shipment visibility. Uh, all this data really cannot be used by existing legacy systems in supply chain. Uh, and that that's a huge that's going to be a huge problem going forward because if you if you have fast changing customer channels, for example, with e-commerce, you can't be looking back three months and trying to make a decision here. 
so what we've been doing over the last few years is, is working with startups that are focused on uh, developing AI and ML-enabled tools that can massage both the old data and the real-time data to reveal new insights about the supply chains, about suppliers, about consumers that can enhance decision-making all the way from the, the um, uh, supplier all the way to the ultimate consumer. Um, we're, we're not big believers in that people are going to wholesale replace their uh, current uh, systems of record, you know, inventory, payments, order management. Uh, they're, they're systems that no one has really been developing uh, uh, new technologies to totally replace them, you know, unlike the past where we'd have, you know, an SAP APO came in and, and started to replace a lot of the Oracle or I2 Manugistics tools. Uh, we don't have that kind of change going on today. Um, so we're, we're, we're envisioning a future where emerging supply chain decision tools that incorporate AI and machine learning sit on top of these existing systems and, and yield significant improvements in, in cost and service, at the same time keeping the CFO happy because they have their systems of record, they know they, they know what the inventory is. They know what carriers need to be paid and what suppliers' uh, uh, invoices uh, uh, need to be taken care of. Those are critical underlying items that still exist in the supply chain world. Uh, but it's going to be the decision tools that sit on top of of uh, your planning and execution systems that are going to be the major major parts of change here. Yes, clearly change management is is tough. So. Um, it it sounds like you're suggesting that uh, we'll we'll have uh, an environment where we have decision making system and systems and legacy supply chain systems coexisting. Um, but uh, I'm interested to hear um, how you think the industry will migrate off of these legacy supply chain systems. Yes, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, um, we do we we do recognize since lean logistics was the first SaaS TMS transportation management system solution back in two thousand one uh, that existed in the market. Uh, we do know that that the transition transition from legacy systems is made a lot easier by the availability of of SaaS solutions for most of the underlying uh, supply chain applications. And these, of course, are faster and cheaper to install than the old uh, school legacy applications. Uh, sometimes it took us, when I was uh, a consultant, 18 months to put in a new you know, supply chain planning system. Now they can be put in in weeks and operational in weeks. Uh, and the other aspect here, I think, is that most companies uh, today do not operate with a single ERP technology across all divisions that, that make incremental change possible. Um, the new reality is that many companies will continue to operate separate supply chain solutions uh, across, across divisions or, or groups since one-size-fits-all solutions are not applicable anymore. You know, for example, one of the divisions in a company may be 100% e-commerce focused, 
needing a different supply chain technology that connects to consumers as opposed to a division that manufactures product and needs to connect with suppliers. So we we see this happening gradually over time, but we don't, we don't see, you know, the historic uh, uh, view here where someone said, well, we're going to have a single instance of SAP across our globe, uh, which was something that when I was at Accenture, we did a lot of. I think today you're going to have much more flexibility among your your divisions and choosing the right software, uh, probably a SaaS-based software that's going to you know, best fit your, your supply chain needs. Now, these decision-making systems that you've referenced um, are, are clearly anchored by uh, the AI and ML technology that we've referenced. Um, how will those technologies most impact supply chains? Well, we, we see AI and ML um, making inroads across uh, all aspects of, of supply chain decision systems. Uh, in production, for example, uh, Fanuc, uh, which is factory automated numerical control in Japan, uh, ro- robots produce other robots without the presence of humans and use AI over time to improve process efficiencies. Amazing. Yeah. In, in the customer service space, uh, one of our portfolio companies RPA Labs automates logistics work activities that are repetitive and time-consuming and no longer require human labor. Think customer queries on where's my shipment or rate quotes or when's my contract uh, coming, uh, you know, can be answered by, uh, by uh, robotic process automation tools that, that really take people out of that mind-numbing uh, <laughs> experience of answering the same question 50 times a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the procurement space, uh, one of our other portfolio companies, Levadata, is using AI to identify pricing seasonality in high-tech procurement processes to develop best practices in supplier contracting. It, you know, it may not be smart to do all your all your buying of, of a product in, you know, in one season, you may find that if I buy a certain amount here and then wait for better pricing a little bit later, uh, that uh, it's, you get a much better, you know, get much better um, uh, cost structure. Um, in the execution space, uh, WISE Systems, uh, which is uh, seamlessly manages uh, what we call day of issues in supply chain execution traffic, weather, block loading docks, customers refusing shipments by using AI to predict intra-week variations in delivery routes, thus keeping the drivers more efficient and not having them um, either try to do, you know, more deliveries they can on a rainy Thursday, which happens every rainy Thursday, uh, or to to incorporate uh, changes in how the consumer uh, wants their deliveries. It, it, one day they may want it at nine, and another day they want it, may want it at four, uh, and incorporating that into root structures uh, so that you're able to, uh, you know, better understand how um, uh, uh, to best serve customer needs. Now you've walked us through the different functional areas of the the industry. Um, how do you assess early stage startups? Uh, in each of those spaces? Uh, this is kind of an inside 
joke, Greg. Uh, <laughs> Greg, <laughs> and, to uh, me, no one's listening. Uh, no, you're right. Everybody's listening. You know, with a well, they, they they're going to think that I'm going to say we have this really exotic process that uh, my partner and I go through. But to be truthful, we've all, it's not unusual for us to make. Uh, an investment on a one-hour phone call. <laughs> We've done it a number of times. Well, that shows good and, gut sense. <laughs> yeah, well, that, there's, there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, in that phone call, however, we want to learn about the team, the marketplace, and the idea because, you know, early-stage startups, they don't have any finances you're going to look at. They, You know, they haven't maybe developed a lot of their technology, so you're not going to be able to do all this exotic due diligence. Um, you know, if we have a secret sauce, it's what we call the what's what's next philosophy. We look for underserved or underserved, um, unserved or underserved supply chain spaces. Um, uh, uh, our, the industry experience of the team to go at that problem is critical. Um, when we do a financial assessment, it's more on the validity of the target customers and the buyers and how much they're willing to pay, what kind of share they might be able to capture, uh, and what the value proposition are they're bringing to the customer. Um, some examples of that might help. Um, we've invested recently in a company called True Load Time. This is a first-time entrepreneur who quit his job a couple of years ago, sold his house, and uh, uh, relies on his wife's income to fund his company. Mm -hmm. It's focusing on um, developing average wait times at uh, the hundreds of thousands of logistics hubs, both plants and distribution centers in North America, uh, because that's a black hole in visibility today. I mean, people know when the truck's on the road, they know what's happening you know, to the vehicle. Okay, they know it's gone into the... Uh, the logistics hub, but then they don't know any more data about what's going on. It's sitting there. It could sit there for 15 minutes. It could sit there for four hours. Why does the do the does the does the load have a um, a, um, a time uh, uh, an appointment time? Is a drop and hook? What kind of uh, product is in there? Is the load palletized or not palletized? There's so many factors that can affect the amount of time it's sitting there. And if you're a carrier and you've accepted that load and you'd said you'd, in your mind, you'd said, okay, I'm going to schedule, I'm going to schedule that for no more than an hour in that facility. And then I'm, I'm going to schedule another customer pickup, you know, a half hour away um, after that's done after that hour. And this truck ends up sitting there for four hours. Well, you've got a real set of problems on your hand. This happens, you know, thousands of times every day, you know, in the U.S. And being able to find out what the true load time is, is that that to me is an unserved space in supply chain uh, and, and a really important one. Um, another so once one you have that data, you can optimize. Right. Uh, much better, yeah. The carrier can just look on the database and say, "Oh, gee, that you know, uh, the average time for uh, you know, a no appointment, uh, uh, unpalletized load at at facility X Y Z is like six hours, you know." Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna, you know, if that's where I'm taking that load, and the shippers asked me to take it there, obviously, I'm gonna tell the shipper I need I need, you know, 
six hours of detention time here. I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to eat that cost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it, 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 it's also lets the shipper know, you know, they're releasing something, you know, to a place that has a terrible reputation and they're going to end up eating a lot of cost, you know, because of the inefficiencies at the end of the trip. I hear you. Um, well, you clearly have had a very effective assessment process. Uh, how has that changed post-COVID? For our existing companies, we have made sure everybody has 12 to 18 months of cash in the bank because no one knows how long this is going to last. Um, and that, some, that meant we, we first part of this year, it, it, as a funny story there too, my partner thought there was going to be a recession in the first quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, he was wrong about the recession, but he was right about the crisis. <laughs> right. And uh, so we had actually bulked up a lot of our portfolio companies with cash starting um, in last November, December uh, and into the first quarter. So that by the time March hit and everything was going, uh, you know, going in the gutter, um, uh, our companies were well taken care of. Um, and, even even then, we said, reduce your hiring, cut all necessary expenditures. We, we'd prefer to see you with 24 months of runway of cash, uh, even if it, customers want more. I said, and because it's, you know, we, we, we don't know what's going to happen. And it's like, okay, a customer gets a little um, a little angry that they don't quite get what they want right now. But, you know. It's, we're in a crisis. <laughs> it's, not, it's not. It's not. It's not that the world's going to uh, come to an end. Although, uh, let's hope that's not the case. And uh, the other advice we gave them was: don't listen to Steve Jobs. I know a lot of people have read <laughs> read Steve's, you know, biography, and and sure. uh, that what what it says. To, you know, Steve will say that when you're in a crisis it's a good time to put a hard pitch for your product and take market share. Uh, but our, we, our view was you're going to be trying to dealing with people that are dealing with crises at home. They may have sick relatives. They may have kids that aren't in school. They may have a spouse that lost a job and they're in states of high anxiety. I mean, you don't want to go in there with a hard pitch because they're probably never going to want to talk to you again <laughs> after you uh, made that effort. Um, so um, what about new companies? Okay, so that was our existing companies. For, for new companies, um, we have a rule that says you don't stop looking um, because viruses have not turned off the entrepreneur's brains and ideas. So you risk the opportunity of missing a good opportunity. So, uh, and so we, we set rational expectations um, you know, if we said uh, at the beginning of the year when people were coming to us with, you know, wanting really high valuations, he said, well, let's look at the equity markets. Well, okay, the mm-hmm. early in the year, down 30%. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to give you something that's 30% above the high in that market as a valuation. And, and just the opposites happen at the end of the year. Now the markets are up about 15% over the last few months. And now we're getting a little more um, um, open on uh, increasing valuations again, so that uh, uh, you know we're we're being fair to the uh, to the entrepreneur. Uh, so it's it's been a uh, 
and, and in some cases, instead of doing a full blown investment, we'll we'll uh, like we we used to do in the past. We will say, hey, we'll give you some cash to think this through, pay the bills, maybe fifty grand or so, work on a development and go to market strategy here during the uh, during the crisis, and and then go big time in the you know in the spring when when things are really happening here. Uh, because if, you, if you're unable to talk with your customers, unable to figure out what they want in the technology, uh, at least uh, you know, at least do some of your basics and uh, and, and be able to um, really, when things start to get more back to normal here, hopefully spring or summer, uh, then then go full bore into you know designing your your technology. So to bide your time through these tough times. Um... Yeah. Uh, well, right. you know, we're clearly seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so what trends will supply chains have to react to in the next 12 months? Well, we've um, we, we've seen over the last uh, nine months or so highly reactionary uh, gap filling solutions <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that uh, uh, that, I, you know, for better or for worse, I, I think we're going to continue to have for for quite a while yet, meaning maybe till mid 2021. And some of the things we've seen, you know, there's a lot, still a lot of patching together interim solutions and supply chains, trying to find additional material and product sources, you know, regardless of cost. Uh, you know, the, the thing we saw early in, in, in March was the loss of key technology uh, sourcing and medical suppliers due to the COVID closures in, in Asia. Um, we've seen the the whole growth of e-commerce and the demand in grocery channels at the expense of food service, the repurposing of plants to produce healthcare, uh, and uh, just a few of the uh, the short-term disruptions that happened then, and frankly, are still continuing uh, today. Um, the other thing we're seeing, and it's still true, is that keeping your plant, your warehouse workers, and your drivers happy, uh, decontaminating facilities and vehicles, establishing new protocols for distancing between workstations and in plants, uh, doing the, the cleaning more often, raising wages, increasing health and leave benefits. Uh, these have, this isn't going to stop quickly. Uh, we're, you know, cause we're, you know, we're going to be still living with this for, you know, probably another six to nine months if, if hopefully not more, but even maybe so. Um, All important I, considerations because labor is such a critical piece. Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, you know, you you and and you look at the you look at the uh, the latest numbers on the hires. Fifty percent of the the hires um, in the last few job reports have been in the warehousing transportation industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that's what that's what people are bulking up right now in terms of. They're, uh, you know, re-optimizing their networks, uh, prioritizing e-commerce as a key delivery channel, moving to ship from store inventory, uh, uh, and, um, you know, moving inventory closer to the the customer base, using more 3PLs that that specialize in e-commerce. and the other thing we've seen is people scrapping their forecasting tools. <laughs> you know, they're, it's, they're pretty useless at this point. And uh, no matter what people say, and uh, 
you know, certainly people are still using them, but they're using them with a lot of caution that, you know, we, especially when you try to forecast cross channel, you know, is no one forecasts the growth rate of e-commerce. Everybody said it's going to grow, but the numbers have been astronomic. Um, I'm just, I just saw numbers for the UK the other day that they're up to 40% e-commerce in the, in the United Kingdom. Uh, wow. Versus, uh, you know, versus store brick and mortar. Well, forecasting has become difficult because of all the change that you've described. Um, what factors are critical to bringing about change in supply chain? Well, that's a, that's a question we ask ourselves all the time because most because of our, you know, we have to invest and, you know, you have to say, okay, if these, companies we're investing in are going to be able to uh, uh, be successful in the marketplace, then what needs to happen? Um, so we say to ourselves, well, do we need more venture capital money? And there's just been huge amounts that have been invested, you know, you know, in uh, over 20 billion in supply chain last year, over 27 billion in AI, uh, in more than 3,000 startups in in uh, in 2019, many of those in the supply chain space. So I don't think we're lacking we're lacking money. Um, how about corporate commitment and and cash? Mm-hmm. There's going to be a, a lot of expensive and necessary transitions ahead. You know, for many supply chains in a capital challenged world. And, you know, this is supply chain right now. I mean, I've been doing a lot of confidential interviews with, you know, global 100 companies here recently. And and I can tell you that the supply chain guys have never had money thrown at them, you know, as quickly as they thought. It's whatever you need, whatever you need, just let us know. We get your capital. That's not going to continue. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not for even six months more, because everybody's going to say, "Well, my God, we threw all this money in the supply chain. What's got? What's the return from this?" Even though it helped us make it through a very difficult, you know, transition time and a crisis. Um, uh, how about new, new supply chain uh, spaces emerging? Uh, that that one interests us a lot. Um, AI-enabled startups are, are building autonomous vehicles, uh, new perception software, fleet management solutions, um, deep learning for high-definition map generation, predictive vehicle maintenance, driver monitoring systems, um, uh, AV simulation capabilities. All these tools are, are going to be working their way into, you know, creating other kinds of change, you know, in supply chain, you know, autonomous vehicles, both inside four walls at a plant or a warehouse, uh, mm-hmm. uh, trucks over the road, yard trucks. Um, there's, there's all sorts of ways in which uh, uh, we're going to see those changes um, start to uh, happen out there. And, you know, truthfully, it's because of startups. It's because people are in investing their time and, and, and money in the part of the venture guys in terms of building these new capabilities that can uh, uh, bring about even more change going forward. 
Now, the funding and the technology won't be enough, though, um, don't you think? Um, talk a little bit about the importance of leadership in terms of change management. Well, as I, I said a, a moment ago, you know, that that's going to be an interesting piece. I What I've, what I've taken away from a, a probably 10 or 15 interviews over the last six months with, you know, major global operators of supply chains. Um, I don't want to mention any names, but, mm -hmm. but uh, if I did, you'd recognize them all um, that they have elevated the leadership uh, of uh, uh, their supply chain uh, people uh, much higher up the, the food chain, <laughs> so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, than, than it used to be. And that they are, you know, sitting at the at the left or the right arm of the CEO now in many cases, instead of having to go through three layers of of uh, you know other executives to have their uh, have their story be told. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is this is an important factor that's going to help going forward. Secondly, the CFO is realizes how critical it is, and and you know their their leadership is going to be critical in, in how this happens as well. You know, you're not going to change from the change from the top is important. That support at the top is critical. And now that the supply chain guys have the ear of the CEO, uh, they can use it to, you know, to their advantage. It doesn't mean that <clears throat> others in the uh, others in the company aren't going to fight for the same capital and, you know, argue that they have better, uh, you know, internal rates of return than, uh, um, than the supply chain investments can be. But, you know, for the moment, supply chain's, uh, you know, on top. And I think it's going to stay there for a while. And, and uh, it'll, be it'll be critical that the existing supply chain leadership, you know, grows with it, and that they're, they're inclusive instead of being exclusive. You know, historically, a lot of supply chain guys would go to the sales and marketing of people and try to work with them on better forecasting and get rebuffed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, there was there could be you know, animosity among, uh, you know, among uh, different groups in, in, uh, in corporate structures. And I think now it's time for the supply chain guys to be, you know, to be the inclusive ones. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, like we might hope for our own uh, own country here. Let's be a little more inclusive uh, going forward, and and uh, not to uh, not to shun, even though you're on top at the moment, supply chain guy. Not to shun all the other groups: production, supply, you know, sales, marketing. Uh, try try to try to make sure that uh, you have a good relationship with them, because you know the tables are going to turn <laughs> eventually, <laughs> and uh, you better off not being a pariah. Very true. And uh, there's some good uh, trends in, in terms of uh, inclusivity. Um, and you've walked us through the, the factors that determine success. Uh, who will be the supply chain operations winners and losers as the economy recovers um, in terms of channels, technologies, sectors? Right. Well, th there's sort of one... I have a very overriding view of this and, and that it, you know, it's, it's uh, sector agnostic in many cases. Um, and, and here, here it goes. Um, 
the winners are going to be the ones who most rapidly invest in new technologies and adapt to changing consumer purchasing trends. You know, more e-commerce buying, more product service customization, higher levels of customer service, easier returns, uh, you know, supply chains that, that work when they're supposed to. And, you know, I don't care whether you're in, you know, uh, consumer goods or oil and gas. I think that that the winners are all going to, you know, invest in those technologies to to make sure that this, in fact, is is going to be true. And and the losers are going to be the ones that think that the old days of, you know, you know, in the case of retail, growing more storefronts to attract customers and using old school technology that really doesn't coincide coincide with with uh, consumer expectations, you know, is going to still work. We're going to go back. Don't worry. And and you see it. You see it in, in it's endemic in the retail sector. You see it even like in the oil and gas sector. I'm not going to pick on Exxon Mobil, but mm-hmm. you know they got chucked out of the uh, chucked out of the Dow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know because you know they're saying, hey, it's oil and gas forever, and it's like no, I don't think that's. You look around, I don't think that's the new reality. <laughs> you know what about our world solar, right now? Hydro, hydro. You know it's like. You guys are uh, you're trying to operate in the old school world, and you know, and mm-hmm. it'll be that it'll be fine for a while. But if you know you're a J.C. Penny and 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 some of the others, it's like it's, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough to change on one hand. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's the uh, kiss of death. <laughs> so mm-hmm. very true. Um, you know, we've we've had um, a, a climate of globalization, uh, you know, in business uh, for quite some time. Um, you know, the the political winds have kind of threatened that approach. Um, is the era of increased globalization of manufacturing dead? Well, uh, the short answer is no. You know, will there be some onshoring of productions? Uh, for sure, PPE, crucial chip technologies, products with too long supply chains that uh, make quick replenishment not possible. Um, you know, which has been it's been pretty clear uh, in in a number of cases here uh, uh, since March. Uh, I, yeah, there'll, there'll there'll be some of that, but you know, the uh, United States can compete with the cost of labor when you have labor intensive production. That's, you know, fashion, uh, many consumer goods that require a lot of labor, toys. What did I see the number 90, 90 plus percent of toys are, are, you know, made, made overseas and from plastic, I might add another, <laughs> it's like, whoa, I didn't realize it was that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's difficult to do that's going to remain where it is today now you know will it shift out of china or into bangladesh vietnam cambodia you know myanmar rather um yeah uh and that's already happening i we we have portfolio companies that have started out you know um working with their um their producers that are in china and in the last six months those producers have many of them have decamped to Mexico, 
uh, which, you know, um, they just decided that it, 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 uh, it was too risky, you know, from a point of view, some somewhat politically risky and, and somewhat supply chain risky uh, to, uh, you know, to continue to do that, that sourcing. So I think we'll see some repositioning of production into Mexico and other LATAM countries, uh, but really won't be any wholesale shift uh, um, that's going to go on. Um, you know, look at look at the big disappointment in Foxconn, right. you know, in, in Wisconsin, you know, promised to build these, you know, $100 million plants up there and, you know, nothing's been done. Um, I, I just heard the other day that, TSMC, which is foundry. does the chip, the foundry, yeah, that does is is likely to be the producer of the new Apple, uh, the Apple chip that they're mm-hmm. going to use in their their phones, is um, likely to move to the U.S. to do it. And you know, is that because Apple whined about it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> mm-hmm. They they want the right price, but you know, on the other hand. You know, TSMC may say for, you know, a variety of reasons, you know, maybe it's better to be for me to eat a little margin and be a little closer to my customers than it is to, you know, have to air freight everything back and forth across, uh, you know, across the Pacific. Because as, as you well know, a, a, a chip can go back and forth uh, three or four times in its life before it ever gets into a product. Uh, because it uh, it might get produced, it might come here to have some other technology put on it. You might go back to have it be put on a motherboard, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, so I, I think you're you're going to still see uh, much of that taking place. And and uh, uh, I mean it's 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 critical to global growth. If if we you know if we said oh let's produce everything we can in the United States and you know the hell with the rest of the world, um, I, I don't think that's a that's that's politically a very very sound strategy here uh, when we want to trade you know <laughs> last time i knew uh, uh you know if if we didn't want to trade with somebody uh, uh they didn't want to trade with us either so it's like how are we going to sell all this stuff we're producing <laughs> right and uh you know the auto industry supply chain is really kind of modeled what you've talked about in terms of uh domestic supply chains and also the you know, Mexico, LATAM presence, um, you know, there's, there's definitely an infrastructure there already. Uh, without a doubt. And, you know, it's, it's a little scary. Um, um, we have, a, we have a portfolio company that is very, uh, does a lot of um, uh, the trucking and, and freight brokerage and customs uh, brokerage across the Mexican border. And, and uh, you know it's be, it's been a scary a scary time to to you know to see how some of uh, some of this stuff is going to work out um, you know with respect to quote bringing things back into the U.S. and uh, you know um, uh, the truth is what's happened in the last we were so we were worried about that last March the truth is they're having that company has got more business than they ever have had back and forth across the border. It's just not true that you can shift a lot of this stuff really quickly, really easily. And with the strength in the auto industry, um, 
you know, you, you just don't say, oh, I'm going to go build a plant to make steering wheels in Ohio. You know, <laughs> you know, two years from now, you might get a steering wheel out the door. But uh, right now, it's not happening. And, uh, and, and, you know, by then, I think a lot of people uh, think that this, the current, um, I'll call it the climate of uh, onshoring is likely to be uh, less uh less strident hopefully and um you know we're able to uh uh you know keep these supply chains operating uh which are extremely efficient extremely cost effective and uh you know do, do we want to uh do we want to want to force higher prices on our u.s consumers by trying to produce everything in the u.s i don't i don't think that's going to uh, go over so well well, let's talk about the number one cross-border issue, which is immigration. Um, and you know, again, politically, there are some signs, you know, that uh, immigration reform, uh, you know, may be up for discussion. But um, how will immigration limits, as we currently see them, impact supply chains? <laughs> well, this is a this is a really interesting question for for us. So. Uh, I haven't said it before, but we probably look at three or 400 uh, supply chain startups a year. And if we look at the ones that make it to our portfolio, well more than 50% of them are founded by immigrants. Um, and Great story. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we have that's one. That's America. Uh, yeah, that's America. Yeah, well, I don't think so. We, one from, one from, uh, from Europe. Uh, Shipmunk came over to study in the U.S. and has built a $150 million e-commerce business here. Uh, from uh, LoadSmart, the founders were from uh, South America, and that, that business is about the same amount, uh, you know, very, been very successful. We've got another one. Uh, well, we've got four or five ones from, from India um, that uh, are all pretty innovative uh, guys that um, not only, um, uh, you know, have come to the U.S., probably been educated here, most likely been educated here, were educated in their own countries. You know, you look at, you look at their degrees and they have a technical a STEM-related degree or two from whatever country they were in. They came over here for, you know, as one of them put it to me, to do the finishing school. It was, it was more to... Uh, mm -hmm. It was more to learn uh, a lot of the English language as it related to, uh, you know, um, uh, supply chain. To be to be blunt, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and so that um, those that uh, those tools that you know mo most of our founders have a have a degree in ops research or or something equivalent um, in because it you know they they can understand how to design you know, new supply chain software, as well as run complex logistics operations for companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, I, I ask myself all the time, I mean, I, I do I want what I, I, I try not to, I, I don't, I don't, not biased for or against, you know, someone who was born and brought up in the United States versus someone that, you know, may have been born overseas and has come to the United States. I, I'm looking for good investments. And, mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, it's like, um, you know, often I see here is, you know, and no offense to uh, no offense to um, certain certain schools, but I see kids coming out of 
supply chain schools and, and, uh, and, you know, trying to do a startup right away and saying, Hey, I can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, you invest in me. I can, I can replace freight brokerage with a digital load board. And, you know, the first question I asked him is, have you guys ever, ever uh, worked in the supply chain industry? (laughs) And in many cases they haven't. And it's like, well, why don't you go get some experience? And, you know, it's like, oh, no, you don't understand. Technology is going to disrupt supply chain big time. And, you know, we, we understand technology. We don't need to understand the industry. And it's like, you have any idea what a brokerage does? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, for me, the bottom line is, uh, you know, I, I want, I want the best, I want the best and the brightest that, you know, cause you're, you know, you're, 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 you're giving a millions of your, your dollars, you know, and many millions of dollars to these companies. And it's like, you got to trust them that they're going to be able to do it. And, you know, we've had, we've had really good success with, with our, uh, our, uh, our portfolio. Um, and as I say, many of them, many of them have come from, uh, from other countries. Uh, so good for them. <laughs> so Now with the, the talent residing in the U S and um, you've touched on this a, a little bit, um, you know, there's definitely a, a climate for nationalization of PPE. Um, uh, do you see other supply chains potentially being nationalized? Yeah. Oh, well, let's hope not. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, Free markets are a much better solution to solving supply chain problems in the long run. You you try to legislate it and forget it. Uh, but what I do think is going to be important is that we look very hard at the concept of strategic reserves of critical materials like PPE, like medical equipment, like rare earths, any any products that or, or, or materials that could be cut off due to intercountry disputes or natural disasters, um, you know, as I've, I've said time and again here, you know, lean supply chains are great and, and we ought to make them as lean as possible. That's why we've gone global, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from a cost perspective in many cases. They're great until they fail, like during 2020. And so we've got to go back and learn what what went wrong. And, and that will help determine... Um, you know, what solutions we need to take. And, and I think, you know, there's some role for the government here. I mean, we've always had a strategic oil reserve. That's not such a big deal. We've had a strategic helium reserve. We've had a number of strategic reserves. Well, those are kind of cool, you know, but they're like so old school. I think it's time for us to think about things like medical equipment, PPE, rare earths, and, and you know, build up build up supplies of things that are critical to today's world, today's technologies. Well, let's, um, let's extend that a little bit um, and, you know, close with uh, what your investment focus is uh, going forward. Well, um, we, we have what we call a Dave and Dan's wish list of companies we'd like to see. And, and that really is, um, you know, is what determines our, our investing focus. And I think, you know, people say, well, you have a mission. I said, well, yeah, our mission is supply chain uh, investing. That's what we do. But we also have, you know, we're not, we're, we're not operators, even though we both did at one time in our lives. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're investors. And so 
I might have a good idea, and but I, I'm not going to go do it. So what we do is we put our good ideas down on the list, and I'll give you an example of some of them. And we literally wait for someone to come along <laughs> that has it. And it's it's worked quite well over the last 20 years we've been investing. Uh, w- one of them at the top of our list is creating and using better real-time data. Because, you know, without improved information on consumer trends, sell-through by channel, in-transit visibility, et cetera, improvements in supply chain decision-making, you know, will be limited. And and that's why we talked earlier about our investment in true load time to better uh, solve some of the black hole problems in supply chain visibility. Mm -hmm. Another area that we're big on is accelerating process automation. Um, supply chain processes are still far from automated. Uh, we, we have a company that has still has 300 people sitting in a room. Well, not at the moment, they're at home that do just customer service. Uh, and it's like, man, that's crazy. You know, they're answering the same questions as I said earlier, day upon day, where's my stuff? I need a rate quote. Is my contract finished? You know, doom, doom, doom. Uh, that can be automated pretty straightforwardly, and, and companies like RPA Labs are doing it. Um, we, we, we do think also that developing uh, applications enhancements of existing legacy systems, such as execution and planning apps that sit on top of legacy systems, can provide more sophisticated answers and use real-time data, which, of course, can't be used by, uh, by your existing uh, legacy systems, and then we then make your decision and, and export the required data back into the systems of record. We think that's going to be a, a major area of development here. We have probably five or six of our, our companies are, are focused on that uh, at the moment. So to have uh, an app-based front end in essence. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then a corollary of that, uh, embedding ALML capabilities into planning and execution software, um, you know, incorporating ALMI, AIML tool sets into decision processes to find underlying trends that we can help make better decisions. Um, we, um, we, we, we want to look at, at startups that can create an ability to have more, that allow supply chains to more rapidly pivot, to take advantage of change. Um, and the ability to use better data, AI, and ML tools, early warning systems to move away from, move decisions away from the present to days, weeks, and months before, before what's going to happen. Uh, we haven't seen anybody there yet, but we're you know we're hopeful that that's going to be. We'll start to see. I, I think I just saw one the other day. I haven't had a chance to look at it in detail. That's that's trying to use uh, you know, trying to look out in the future. And and predict you know where supply chains may have issues uh, now you know and to be able to deal with them now, um, developing sustainable and resilient supply chains. Uh, uh, companies have um, a lot of influence over their tier one suppliers now, but you know tier two, three, four, they have no idea what's going on. You know, with blood diamonds, slave labor, child labor issues. Uh, these are big deals today, and, and you need to be cautious of that. Uh, and the final one is integrating robots and autonomous vehicles into supply chains, uh, plants, warehouses, yard management, over-the-road tools. Um, 
we think that's a huge space. We, we've got an investment in a company called IC out of MIT that's right now has developed a, an operational yard management system for yard trucks so that, you know, you can totally automate your, your, your logistics hub and, uh, you know, take people uh, out of the lot and uh, fewer drivers running into buildings <laughs> or running into each other. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the uh, autonomous technology doesn't let you do that. So it's an exciting time. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be alive. Even at 76 years old here, I get excited every day doing this and, and uh, you know, really, um, uh, as I said earlier, I, th I think I'll do it for another 10 years. Let's see if I last that long, but I, I'm hoping I do. Well, that's terrific. And, you know, obviously the, the trends are, are positive. Um, you know, I've, I've seen recent multiples quoted in the 30 X neighborhood. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, sir. We've, um, we've had some pretty significant, uh, exits that three you know, X would, would be, wouldn't be much of a winner for us. I'll tell you that, <laughs> uh, Lama soft selling to Coupa, uh, that's uh, well well above 10x, and uh, and two of our others are are in the same space right now that are that are coming out that aren't the deal's not finalized yet. I I can't talk about them, but yeah, we've got we've got significant returns on on some of our our, our companies, and I and we expect that for you know some of our smaller ones as well. Um, it's a hot white hot space, and that's why so many uh, venture guys are trying to get into it, and and so many PE guys are. Are, uh, are working, uh, you know, working in, in this space as well. You know, I listed a few of them earlier, TPG, HG, Marlin, JMI, Francisco, Insight, all major players in, in the supply chain space uh, today. So, you know, it's become a, it's become something of interest to the, to the big players as well as the small guys like ourselves. Well, Dave, you've really had uh, a tremendous record of, of success, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to return to you to leverage your expertise um, as we look at new companies and trends, uh, and I, I want to thank you for your time today, Dave. Well, thank you, Greg. I love talking about this stuff. It's, that's pretty obvious, I guess. Very uh, clear. And it's also why I said up front that, you know, my hobby is my business here. So <laughs> if you're going to do this correctly, you've got to put a lot of hours in. And uh, that's what we do. So, Well, you, you live it, uh, which is terrific. Um, I'd also like to thank our listeners. Uh, please visit your favorite podcast platform and give us a review and subscribe. We're building a resource for you. Email us at info at futurechain.org with your feedback, suggestions on guests, uh, and questions. Thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Good day. <laughs>